Hi, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a bunch that I want to talk about, and w- one thing uh, is is a, is a very it's a it's a very painful subject, but I, I just feel like uh, it should be addressed, um, which is the the shooting that took place in the in the movie theater in in Colorado. Um, it was a it's a total terrible tragic uh, occurrence. Um, for those of you who somehow haven't heard about it, um, this uh, man uh, is, I guess, mid early twenties. Uh, how old? Twenty eight. Okay, thank you. Twenty eight. Went into um, a movie theater uh, uh, for the midnight showing, the premiere of uh, Batman, the uh, the third of the. Christopher Nolan trilogy, and uh, dressed in body armor and a gas mask, and there were other people who were dressed in costume, and and so the people who saw him thought that he was just part of the excitement and the kind of the the fanboy culture of of the uh, of the of the event, and he threw a um, tear gas uh, grenade and then started shooting people in the theater that were trapped in the theater. And at this point, there are 12 dead, 50-plus injured. I think there are five still in critical condition right now. Um, and as if that's not enough, he also um, booby-trapped his apartment um, with tons of explos- uh, explosives so that with a tripwire, so that whoever walked in would um, would certainly be killed. But not only that, but um, the entire building was going to explode. There were tons and tons of explosives, and it's it's taken them two days to to um, to defuse or whatever the right word is the, the the apartment, and and they're still finding stuff. And so he put. Lots and lots of effort, not only into the the killing that went on, uh, and they say he was planning for months that he was receiving packages at work and at his home on a regular basis. He had um, 6,000 rounds of ammunition, 6,000, um, lots and lots of guns, rifles, assault rifles, all, all sorts of things. Um, but... But what I want to discuss right now is whether there's any connection between this person and, and also to just address the topic, is he crazy? Is he not crazy? Is he evil? What, 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 what can we say about a person like this? And, and, and maybe even more Pointedly, is there a connection between the material that he's watching and his actions? And let me just preface all of my comments by saying that this is a story that's unfolding. It just happened. And I'm no authority on anything. And I'm just going to tell you my opinion. And, and you can take it or leave it. But that's, that's what I'm going to offer you. Okay, there are many, many people. The articles are have already been written and there are more articles to come about how the material had meaning the Batman, the nature of the the, the series itself had nothing to do with with this whatsoever. And that's their opinion. So I'm going to tell you my opinion and, and try to build it. And like I say, you can take it or leave it. Um. I, I, I want to tell you about um, something uh, just in terms of the history of people's relationship with popular culture. And uh, one of the most famous uh, German poets going back a couple of hundred years, one of the great poets in, in literature, uh, is named Goethe. And he wrote a very famous poem in its day called The Sufferings of Young Werther. And this was a tragic, um, it was sort of like this epic poem 
about someone who's in love and who commits suicide because his, his, um, his romantic interest doesn't like him back or, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't work out for him romantically, so he commits suicide. So now this is approximately a couple of hundred years ago. This is before television. This is before the movies. All right, that's, that's the point. There was a rash of suicides in Germany based on this poem because this poem had such an impact on people. So, so I think that that's an important precedent. And I'm sure that there are many more precedents like this throughout history. And I'm just not knowledgeable enough to quote them. But I know this one for sure. And I, I read the poem, by the way, as well, because I was so intrigued by this uh, in college I read it. Um, and I was always struck by that fact that people were so moved by this poem that they themselves committed suicide to emulate this thing. So, again, what I think is significant about this is that a lot of people think that this is um, a modern issue, that the correlation between movies and television and video games is a, is a modern issue. But I think that this precedent shows that there's a historic connection between popular culture and influencing people to act in a certain way. Now, I don't know that I would be addressing this particular case today if I didn't have an additional personal connection to it. And it might sound very uh, tangential to you, but for me it like, it's been an issue for a number of years, and so to see it play out like this is, is very disturbing to me personally. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, when, like I say, this, this movie where the shooting took place was the third of, of three movies. It was a trilogy that was the third. The first one was sort of like celebrated, but no one made such a big deal of it. The second one, which was called The Dark Knight, was huge. It was an absolute, you know, cultural milestone. It broke box office records all over the place. And, uh, and really, a lot of people felt like this was the, the greatest superhero movie ever made. And I saw a little bit of it, a tiny bit of it. And it was the, the villain in it was named uh, The Joker. And I saw a little bit of it. Uh, on a, a clip or something like that. Not in the movie theaters. I, I never went to see the movie. And the portrayal of the Joker was so, to me, on a spiritual level, I'm talking about how my soul reacted to it, so horrific that I told my son that he didn't have permission to see the movie. I told him that this movie is a corruptive movie and that he can't see this movie. That there's something toxic about this. Specifically about the character of the Joker. In my life, I've not banned my son from seeing a movie ever. And he got very upset because his friends were seeing this movie and it was a wildly popular movie. And everyone saw this movie. And as an artistic piece, it was celebrated. And I want to talk about whether there's any connection between art and morality, beauty and truth. I want to discuss all of these connections. And it almost became a running issue between uh, my son and I over the years. You wouldn't let me see that movie. You wouldn't let me see that movie. Now, when this person was arrested, and it's so interesting to me that they caught him alive, because normally speaking, someone who does like something like this, a mass shooting, then kills himself. Not only didn't he kill himself, but he wasn't done with the killing because he had booby-trapped his apartment, as I mentioned. Not only that, but he also armed himself with full body armor. So this man did not want to die. When they caught him, he said, I am the Joker. He referred to himself as the Joker. This character that I had seen years before, this portrayal of this character, which 
spiritually revulsed me so much. I had such a reaction to it. To this day, I had such a reaction to it. And so I thought it was just, just too much that this guy had been so influenced by, by the portrayal of the Joker in the previous movie that he modeled his persona and this entire murderous act on this character. So again, on some level, I, I, I talked with my son. I said, do you see? Do you see what I was talking about? Do you see? So he said, well, the guy's a terrorist. I said, the guy is not a terrorist. You have to use language precisely. A terrorist has a political agenda. He wasn't shooting people in the movie theater to say, U.S. out of Afghanistan. He wasn't saying, no more 3D films. There was no political or social agenda to what he was doing. He was killing for sport. This was killing for sport. For self-aggrandizement. Now let's throw in another element, which is the fact that he was a Ph.D. student in neuroscience and had received a grant from the National Institute of Health for his studies. So now you've got a brilliant neuroscientist committing this act. So now, the easy thing to say, and then we can say this, and then we can wash our hands of the entire thing and go on with our lives, we all say, he's crazy. And now, it's time to get a cup of coffee, read the paper, go for a jog. But is it that easy to say that he's crazy? So again, let me repeat, the story is still unfolding, and I'm not an authority on anything. I'm just sharing you with you my opinion, okay? I think it's very easy to say that someone is crazy. There are a lot of people who have chemical imbalances and who don't go into movie theaters massacring people, including a six-year-old girl. Everyone referred to him in all the accounts that I've read as a loner. There's a certain thing that happens to people. If you spend too much time alone, especially if you're playing violent video games and if you're watching movies like The Dark Knight over and over again, as I imagine he must have. I, I don't think he saw it once five years ago. I think it's I think we can presume that he watched it many, many times. In addition to the fact that when they found him, he had painted his hair red so that he could look more like the Joker when he did this action. Something begins to happen to a person where other human beings become abstractions. And one of the main teachings, one of the, uh, not the main teaching, but a, a very famous, important teaching in the Talmud is that people are not numbers. Once you turn people into numbers, you create an abstraction out of humanity and out of emotion. Mao Zedong, who's one of the great murderers in history, Tens of millions of people died at his hand during his transformation of China into a communist nation. Mao Zedong famously said that if you want to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. It's an exceedingly, exceedingly callous way of saying that human lives are going to have to be dispensed and done away with in order to achieve our political ends or social ends or whatever it is. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Millions of people all of a sudden are reduced to the status of an egg that can be cracked. Right? Once a person cuts themselves off from humanity in a meaningful way, 
and immerses themselves in this this type of sensory bombardment where killing is the norm and doesn't have any consequences like in video games, for instance. And in violent movie making, a person begins to think that that's reality. Now we're talking about obviously a very specific type of personality. This is not a regular person. So the question is, to what extent was the movie, the Batman movie with the Joker, responsible for his actions? Can you say that it was responsible at all? So like I said, I I, I already know of articles, at least one article that's been written saying that the movie had nothing to do with it. And if that's your opinion, that's your opinion. That's fine. I'm, I'm really not trying to persuade you of anything. I'm just telling you how I understand it. One of the things that you'll find at universities, you know, being said by young, pretty intellectuals, is beauty is truth. Beauty is truth. Art is truth. Is, is that right? So I want to address that point. I would say Torah is truth. Is beauty truth? Is art truth? What art can do, what, what real art can do, is to take aspects of the human condition and portray them in such a compelling way that they seem very, very real and very magnificent. They can capture an aspect of life. But here's the key point. Art itself has no code of morality. And as a consequence of that, you can take the indomitableness of the human spirit and you can portray that and then it becomes celebrated if you are a talented artist. That becomes celebrated and you want to emulate that. That's the power of art. But because art doesn't have any moral code whatsoever, you know, I'm often struck by the fact that, you know, say Playboy magazine or modern day pornography as we know it, you know, is, is sort of built on having cameras and movie cameras or video cams or things like that, right? But, you know, hundreds of years ago, or even thousands of years ago, they had naked statues that look very lifelike. They're anatomically correct. And I imagine what the morality of the day was that you would walk into a place and there would be a beautiful naked woman standing there or a painting, a wall-sized painting of naked people frolicking with one another. So, in other words, the, 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 and yet we look at that and we say, oh, well, that's from hundreds of years ago. But put yourself in the mindset of the person in that day. That was probably fairly racy, you know, to, to say the least. And, and who would, would you bring your children to see that? Well, now we say, well, that's a museum piece. But in its day, I'm sure it was very shocking as well. The point that I'm trying to make is that throughout the ages, while art can portray aspects of the human condition in remarkable ways and can inspire people, art throughout history has no code of morality in and of itself about what can be portrayed. And as such, you can take something extremely negative and toxic. You can take psychosis and murderousness and you can portray that in an incredible way, so that it looks very appealing and very beautiful in its own perverse way. Look how magnificently evil he is. It's awesome that I've never seen the depths of evil portrayed so compellingly. 
it's worth noting as an aside that the person who played the Joker in that film died shortly thereafter. Wigged out completely. I don't know, did he OD? Was that it? Or was it a suicide? Well, okay, so whatever it is, I'm not, I'm not judging him. I, yeah. Okay, so, so that's good. So, so, so Schiffer is saying that he said that playing that, becoming a vessel for that energy to go through, if I can put it in my own words. Yeah. Really freaked him out, you said. Yeah. And so, so from this, I'd like to saying, and, and I, I don't think that I'm saying anything radical right now. I think what I'm saying is very logical. That, that art itself can betray, can portray evil in a beautiful way. Evil in a, in a way that makes it worthy of wanting to emulate. Because it's so compelling. Now, again, it takes a lot of people will see this and a lot of people will not paint their hair red, arm themselves in, you know, a SWAT team level, you know, bulletproof clothing and start shooting children in a movie theater. But does that mean that therefore that movie didn't have that effect on him? As an aside, but just as a way of giving example. There are people who say, well, you know something? Is there really a concept of truth in this world? Like, this person says this is true, and that person says the opposite is true, and then someone else says something else is true. So, really, if there really is something true, how can everyone be saying that all these things are true? So, so what I would like to suggest... Just a simple kind of metaphor, example, analogy, is there can be someone who says, you know what, there's no such, good, no such thing as good Chinese food. And I know because I've been to ten Chinese restaurants and none of them have been good. But does that mean that there's no such thing as good Chinese food? Maybe he hasn't been to a good Chinese restaurant. There are a lot of people who say, you know what, religion's not for me. Well, have you ever heard it said right? From a teacher who you respond to? Just because you haven't encountered it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. The fact that millions or I don't know how many people, let's say millions of people saw this movie and didn't emulate that behavior doesn't mean that that movie didn't cause someone to emulate that behavior. Or, let me rephrase that, not cause someone, but inspire someone. So, so what's the answer? What's the answer? So maybe the answer is censorship. But censorship is kind of a bummer, you know? Like to start putting restrictions on the creative process. It's speaking as someone who's, who makes my profession in the, in the creative field, Censorship is, is, is kind of a bummer. On the other hand, though, I think that it's important for artists and creative people to have a sense of responsibility and to understand the implications of what they're putting out into the world and the, and, and the, and the effect that it can have on other people. I mean, to think that we have the power to ennoble others by taking stories, which are amazing stories and all fascinating in their own right, 
the highest aspect of ourselves doesn't want to roll around in the lowest mud of another person's experience. And art speaks to the highest aspect of ourselves. And ideally it should be used in that way. So, on this subject, I want to go into more of a, a, a spiritual Torah mode in a, in a moment. But, you know, I just pray that God should heal all those who are still injured from that accident and the families that are grieving and that, that we shouldn't call a guy like this crazy. He wasn't so crazy that he didn't spend hours and months, they said, booby-trapping his apartment and dressing himself and planning out every aspect of this. He wasn't so crazy that he, couldn't, that, that he was incapable of doing that. And there is such a thing as evil. And it makes us very uncomfortable to use words like that. Because we, we ourselves don't really have the proper definition of evil. So let's, let's just talk about a moment what evil is. It seems to... Evil is such a big word and it's so charged that it seems to summon this sort of like supernatural, supervillain quality to it. And so we're uncomfortable using it. And yet I think that one of the things that was borne out in the Nuremberg trials when they prosecuted the, 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 the Nazi you know, leaders was they talked about how mundane, how banal evil really is. That in other words, a person can be essentially a, a bureaucrat and by sort of like saying, okay, well, let's see, what do we have to do? We have to hire a construction company. You know, Hans is... Uh, has fences. All right, let's get Hans. Give Hans a call. Call him up. Tell him Tuesday at 12, he should drop off all the barbed wire for the fences. Then who's in the oven business? Well, I know someone who's got a restaurant supplies kind of thing. So he makes ovens. All right, well, he's going to have to custom make some larger ovens. So give him the dimensions of the ovens. Tell him that we're looking to start up in about two months, you know, and that he's really going to have to come through for us. And then... Um, well, we're going to have to train some people. Okay, who's in special operations? All right, tell him that to start alerting his underlings to look for certain personality types and start recruiting them because we're going to need about 250 people by May to be able to do this, and then we'll start their official training. And I'm, I'm making all that stuff up. But that's, that's how they did it. It wasn't so different from how they did it. It's pure bureaucracy. You don't see someone cackling, right, with long fingernails and, like, pointed teeth, right, and a chain mail shirt. You see how banal that conversation was. And yet, what is that? that we're making a death camp. That's a, that's a formula for making a death camp, what we just talked about. So, when someone cuts themselves off from humanity, from another person's humanity, when someone conceptualizes humanity by turning it into numbers, remember, people are not numbers. A very simple teaching, but very, very far-reaching. That's the definition of evil. And it can be anyone. It can be anyone. And maybe we need another word for that. And so, so there's a, there is a word that's used in, in, in psychiatric circles. Someone who's a sociopath. So a sociopath is someone who has, who, who basically has no conscience and can't, 
can't just, they, they, do, they don't take into account another person's suffering, right? Or the consequences of their actions. And that's classified as a psychiatric disorder almost on the organic level. That someone, just like someone might have measles, someone is, you know, has sociopathology. But, again, speaking as a layman, it seems to me that one doesn't necessarily have to be born with the condition of being a sociopath. That one can turn themselves into a sociopath. And there's complete responsibility for their actions. Is it actually an organic condition that a person gets? I don't know. I'm I'm not well-versed enough in the literature to, to, to tell you that. I don't know. And if it is organic, could it be that this person got it organically and therefore ultimately is not responsible for his actions? I don't know. I don't know. But it sure seemed like he was on the ball in a lot of other ways. And it sure seems, based on all the people who talked about him, that he had cut himself off from other people. So what I'm trying to say is, and now I'm not talking about him because I don't know, but I'm saying that a person is capable, by removing themselves from society, by immersing themselves in the glorification of killing by surrounding themselves in portrayals, beautiful portrayals, artistic portrayals of the darkest elements of the human personality. That all those things are a very toxic cocktail and can combine to create a personality who will do things like this. So, on a positive note, one of the things that it it tells us is the importance of friendship and community. You have to have a community. And you have to have friends. And you know, it says in Pirkei Avos that if you don't have a friend, you should buy a friend. Can you imagine how important a friend is that you're supposed to buy one if you don't have one? And by the way, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that that's the, one of the sources for going to a psychologist. Because he says that, what is a psychologist? It's a friend that you buy. Because <laughs> you pay him to listen to you. That's the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said that. He said that. But you need human interaction. You need community. You can't isolate yourself. Because especially now that the technological revolution and, and, and the media revolution has reached such a state, the more you isolate yourself, the more you become vulnerable to these type of maladies. You know, I remember... When I first started keeping Shabbos, or even before I started keeping Shabbos, I, uh, someone said, um, this was before I was keeping Shabbos, someone said, or I said, well, you can't drive on Shabbos. That's one of the laws of, of keeping Shabbos. So I said, well, what if you don't live near a, a, uh, a Jewish community that's within walking distance? And the person said something back to me which really made me mad. He said, when you pick an apartment or a house, you're supposed to pick one within walking distance to a Jewish community that you like. And I thought, chutzpah, <laughs> what is he saying to me? You know, such a fundamental right, like breathing, is where I pick my apartment. And it's the Jewish community's fault that they didn't move next to my apartment. Not vice versa. And over the years, I see that there actually is quite a logic to that. And that community is so important, it's so essential, that one has to make it one of their priorities of their life. If they're going to live 
a healthy life. Community, in terms of diet, there's exercise, there's positive attitude, and there's also community. That is one of the building blocks of, of, of mental and physical health and spiritual health. So, so that's one of the antidotes. Friendship, community, not isolating yourself. And by the way, if you don't have friends, volunteer. Volunteer for organizations. Find organizations that need you and call them up and volunteer. And this will, this will get you in a giving mode, which is also very important. You know, I heard Rabbi Weiss say this many years ago in the name of the Zohar, which was, he said that, that, uh, that disease is, 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 is comparable to like a still waters in a dam. And I think everyone knows that if you have waters which, which just sit there, that those are breeding grounds for things like malaria. Because the, the, the waters don't move and mosquitoes come and all of a sudden it becomes like a breeding ground for, for disease. So waters have to flow in order for them to be clean and healthy, right? So alongside, working with this analogy... He said in the name of the Zohar that every single person, there's a divine flow that's coming down into you on a regular basis. This flow. And that if you don't, through your actions, put it out there. In other words, if you don't express yourself through your actions, through doing good things, whether it's talking or doing or volunteering or chesed work, kindness, whatever it is, that those, that flow gets stuck inside of you. And it doesn't have an outlet. And that's what creates on a spiritual level disease. Because they become sort of like stagnant, it's a stagnant flow inside of you. You're receiving all this light and you're not putting it back out into the world. Again, just a, another model of this. So these are all antidotes to isolation. And if it's not easy for you, force yourself. Force yourself. And you'll find that, that you'll be glad that you did. All right, well, let me... Should we just stop here or do you want to do one more lesson? Just, just one more thing? Okay. All right, so this is on the same theme, but it's, um, it's not discussing the, the event in Colorado anymore. It is and it isn't. You'll see what I mean. So Amalek, Amalek is that force, that nation, it's one of the nations of the world, that tries to, it's basically the arch enemy to use uh, comic book terms, the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And throughout history, they've waged war against the Jewish people. And um, probably the most famous example, the two most famous examples are Haman, Haman, in the Purim account, was the one who wanted to create this mass genocide against the Jews. And almost succeeded. His lineage was from Amalek. And of course, the nation of Amalek, after all the miracles in Egypt that were performed and the splitting of the Red Sea, after we left the splitting of the Red Sea and the entire world was ready to recognize the truth and the oneness of God, Amalek came and attacked the Jewish people. We hadn't done anything to Amalek. They came and attacked us. And so they created, they stopped the revelation of God's oneness which was about to culminate with the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai a few days later. 
And the entire world would have come to the understanding of the oneness of God. And Amalek derailed that and has derailed that to this day. To this day. Now, in describing Amalek, there's a famous verse in the Torah. It's in uh, Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verse 16. In English it says, For the hand is on the throne of God. Hashem maintains war against Amalek from generation to generation. So, so God, so to speak, puts his hand. God, of course, doesn't have a hand, but this is just, we say, Kaviyochel, just, uh, he speaks in ways for us to understand. For the hand of God is on, is, is, is on the throne. So, the way that the Torah spells that is it says, the, the way that you should say that, the throne of God, is Kisei Hashem. So, using the full name of God. But instead, it says, Case Yah. So, from the word throne, which is Kisei, it says Case. So, the, the letter Aleph is missing on the end. It's interesting because Aleph stands for one, and God is one, and so the Aleph is missing. And then, it's got the first two letters of Hashem's name, but not the last two letters. The Vav and the He are missing. So, when it talks about the throne of God in this verse... It's incomplete. The throne is incomplete and the name of Hashem is incomplete. And Rashi comments there very famously that as long as Amalek exists, as long as evil exists in this world, the revelation of God's oneness will not be complete. So in other words, understand that God is one. God fills the entire universe and exists dimensions beyond the universe. And yet, the revelation of his oneness is not complete as long as evil is here. That should be very clear. So now, we say Kaddish. And and that's really the point of what I'm bringing up here. We say Kaddish, it's an elevation for the souls of the departed. But also, it's to sanctify God's name in this world and to reveal his oneness. Now, there's one passage that the entire community says. We say, Amen, Yeheshme Rabba Mavarach Maya. Which means that may God's great name be revealed and sanctified for all time, forever. So powerful is our saying that, that it says in the Gomorrah that a person, even if they have. 70 years of evil decrees upon them that by yelling that out with proper intention all the evil decrees can be ripped up. So, so it's something that I've always yelled out if I can, if I have the energy if I'm focused enough I always try to yell it out as do many people. But it says you have to Say it in a loud voice with kavana, meaning intention. And I never knew, what am I supposed to have in mind while I'm saying it? I've been saying this for decades. Don't know, what exactly am I supposed to have in mind? And I just saw this teaching. It's an amazing thing. I just saw this teaching this past week. And I wanted to say it at the third meal in shul. Because I was so struck by it. It explains what you're supposed to have in mind. And that morning in shul, like a few hours before I was going to say it, someone gives me a, a uh, Xeroxed small book about Kaddish. And they said, read this. And in that book, and I was surprised that I read it, because usually I take a nap and I wake up right before shul and I got to run. For some reason, I had extra time and I wanted to use it for learning. And I read the whole thing. In that book was the teaching that I'm going to tell you now, that I had never seen before, except a few days before, and which I was planning on saying hours later. So there it was again. It's fascinating. Can't believe it, you know? 
So, what are you supposed to have in mind when you say that may Hashem's name be great? You're supposed to have in mind case ya, that it should become the kisei Hashem, that that the bottom two letters of Hashem's name, the vav and the hey, should become revealed. I'll explain what that means in a moment. So remember, the holiest name of Hashem is like a map of the universe. We have Yud and He and Vav and He. The upper letters represent the upper worlds. So that can't be touched by evil. So the Yud and the He is still here because Amalek can't, can't touch that. But the bottom aspect, the Vav and the He, the bottom He stands for this dimension, and the Vav is like that conduit from which the energy from the upper worlds flows down into this world, that represents the revealed world. Okay? So we're the vav and the hay. That's us. We're the revealed aspect of God's creation. And so if us in this dimension, in the revealed part, yell out that God's great name should become revealed and made great and sanctified... What we're doing is we're completing the name of God. We're making Yehishme Rabbah, that the, that the name of God is being made great because it's being completed, because the revealed aspect of God, which is us in this dimension, is shouting out the presence of God. Now, interestingly, listen to this. Vav and He, that part which we stand for, is the number 11. 11 Kabbalistically stands for Klipot, the husks, meaning to say those, those veils which obscure the presence of God. That's what's symbolized by the number 11. Okay? Now there's a teaching that I was telling you last week, but this is a perfect this is a perfect application of it. If you remembered, we won't go through all the depths of it, but if you remember, the name Pinchas is the same gematria as the name Yitzchak. Yitzchak was the first person to receive a bris milah, the circumcision on the eighth day. You remember, we, we, we went into depth, if you want to hear it, it's last week's uh, talk. Are you a finished product or a work in progress is the name of the talk on TorahOnitunes.com if you want more details. But basically, when you circumcise someone, there's an extra flap of skin that Hashem puts on men that he doesn't have to put there because the human body is so ridiculously complex and God pulls that off you think he can't not put that extra flap of skin on? He puts it on on purpose in order to symbolize that we have a role to take our imperfections and to complete ourselves. That God creates within us negative attributes, personality problems that need to be worked on. And we have to work on them. We're not finished products. That's part of our glory. The fact that we can become partners with God in terms of finishing up ourselves. And of course, we individually are a microcosm of the world. That we can finish the world as well. With God. So Yitzchak is the first one who is circumcised. So he represents the revealed aspect. Because he's gotten rid of that level of imperfection. That's what's symbolized by cutting off the orla. By that extra flap of skin. But remember, Yitzchak is the same gematria as Pinchas. Pinchas is the one who reveals. Remember, he's the one who spears Cosby and Zimri. And we talked about how on a spiritual level, that was like a circumcision because the soul of Zimri came from the Orla of Adam. So that, spiritually speaking, on a soul level was a circumcision. And when we do the circumcision ceremony, if you look in the prayer book, the first thing that we do is mention Pinchas. So, Pinchas and Yitzchak are the same gematria. Pinchas is the, circum, is the circumciser, 
Yitzchak simultaneously is the circumcised. Pinchas is the one who reveals by taking off the orla. Yitzchak is the one who becomes revealed through having the orla taken off. And they're both the same gematria. So the revealer and the revealed are the same one and it's happening simultaneously. So now, let's relate this back to saying, Because when we say that, we're supposed to have in mind that the Vav and the He of Hashem's name should become revealed. That's this dimension. And remember, the Vav and the He is the number 11. That represents Klipot. That represents Orla. That which has to be taken off. And so when we say that God's name should become manifest in this dimension, what we're doing is we're simultaneously cutting away the husks. And in, in cutting away the husks, we're revealing simultaneously the oneness of God that's already here, but it's just obscured. I hope that I'm expressing myself. Let me say it one more time. Pinchas and Yitzchak are the same gematria. The circumciser and the circumcised are the same. They happen simultaneously. God's presence is obscured in this realm. When we shout out that Hashem exists in this realm, we simultaneously cut away and reveal. So on a spiritual level, we said that what this time of the year is, remember, we're in this ten-week period before Rosh Hashanah. We're in the period right now of what's called the three weeks, and then you have the seven weeks of consolation. These three weeks are very intense. This is the most intense period of the entire year. And in terms of the negative energy, you just have to open up the newspaper to see it. But just like this ten weeks is divided up into three weeks and seven weeks, so the spherot are also divided up into three and seven. And these three weeks correlate with the three highest upper levels of the spherot, meaning to say that the light that we're experiencing right now comes from the highest place. The problem is, is that we don't have vessels for this light right now. And so because we don't have vessels for this intense light, it has a destructive element to it because we haven't been able to harness it through our proper actions we have to create proper harmonious models of interaction with interacting with ourselves with interacting with each other that's what the mitzvot are and then we'll have vessels for this great light and then we'll see we'll see the oneness that was always there 